Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by Data Guidance by OneTrust in association with Hogan Lovers. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of That Privacy Podcast. Um, it's a glorious day again in central London. We're sitting, as usual, in the office of Eduardo Ustran, partner at Hogan Lovells and co-director of the Privacy and Security Practice. Uh, I'm joined as ever by Alexis Katafidis, Global Privacy Director at Data Guidance by OneTrust, and Eduardo. So thanks again for welcoming us to your lovely office. Um, oh, thanks, Eduardo. Right. Sun's out again. Must be a good sign for our latest podcast. So my name is David Longford, CEO of Data Guidance by OneTrust, and I hope you enjoy today's discussion. Um, the first episode was great. I think we got some really good feedback. We got loads of people um, getting in touch on LinkedIn, online, mm-hmm. got loads of listeners. So please keep that coming. If you're listening for the first or second time today, we'd love to hear about what you'd like us to talk about. You know, that's what that's what this is all about, really. Um, to recap, this podcast is um, is going to be about perspectives on data and data privacy. That's kind of my view on it. Um, we have the fortune to work in jobs where we're you know daily looking at how data is changing everything in the world. We kind of touched on that last time, Eduardo, with your age of privacy um, uh, piece. And so, you know, wherever you are in the world, Brazil, India, the UK, we're all seeing this kind of incredible disruptive technology really becoming embedded at the moment in our personal and professional lives, um, which creates ideas, opportunities for business models to be developed that really use data in innovative and interesting ways. And working, you know, luckily working at Data Guidance or Hogan Levels, this is kind of how we spend a lot of our time speaking to privacy professionals about how they're trying to interpret those business models and that technology into privacy programs for their organizations and for their data subjects, obviously. So, you know, we hear from these chats about how privacy teams are constantly trying to keep track of what's going on in each country uh, they operate in, keep one eye on what the regulator, a regulator may ask them to do, and at the same time, you know, work out aside from the laws, what are the expectations that exist in, um, in, a, in a country or a jurisdiction around the use of data? and how to communicate to data subjects about what the data is being used for, the individual rights in that particular place, how that changes around the world, etc. So that's a kind of a uh, snapshot of what we're going to try and do over the next kind of half an hour to 45 minutes. And to finish, you know, one thing I really love, I'm sure everyone here does about the privacy industry, is the variety. You know, we're looking at data privacy issues in aerospace, healthcare, social media, even you know, farming and agriculture. <laughs> it really is an embedded theme. So um, sometimes we speak to privacy teams or privacy professionals that are far less resourced than they perhaps need to be uh, to guide and protect their organizations. And, you know, other times privacy is you know, really dominant at the moment in, in organizations and really, really thriving at the heart of future plans as you know, businesses everywhere work out how to pivot their business models to become really data centric and agile. So, um, yeah, we're lucky enough to, to be working in this. It's a, it's a really fascinating job, and I hope we get a, a bit of that enthusiasm and love for what we do across in this podcast. So, on with the show. Um, Alexis, what have we got on the, on the session today? Sure. Um, well, I think given uh, the timing of where we are today, we're 13th of May, we're almost a year into GDPR, so I think that has to be uh, on the menu. Um, it's dominated discussions, obviously, over the last year, um, and will continue to do so for many years to come. Um, so really, we want to do a little bit of a recap, a look back, and also, importantly, a look forwards on um, some of the compliance requirements and uh, programs that we can still develop with respect to GDPR compliance. Um, 
couple of other topics as well. We'll have a little bit of a look at uh, the proposed e-privacy regulation, where we are on that. Have a little look at the EDPB opinion um, on the existing directive and the GDPR. Um, taking it out a little bit, having a look at the global landscape as well. We'll be talking about Japan, CCPA. We'll be talking about the LGPD in Brazil. Um, and also a little bit, I think, quite nice timing um, to have a look back on just the general developing nature of the privacy profession. I mean, we've um, all been traveling quite a lot this year and attending a lot of uh, different conferences. The summit uh, from the IAPP was a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, and the, the membership of the IAPP has absolutely exploded and the profession itself has obviously exploded. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really interesting that, you know, we'll hopefully dive into a little bit of a discussion about how privacy pros have been finding you know the, their workload today and how maybe that is different to let's say 20 years ago sure, when, yeah. or you know from 1995 when the Completely directive first came into different world yeah absolutely mm -hmm. awesome. um, great so let's let's get started um, so 13th of May today yeah um, so we're almost uh, less than two weeks away yeah, from the 25th yeah. it was a big countdown a lot of people nervous at this point yeah. last year do you remember last, this yeah. time last year yeah, it was, was a really strange time it was absolutely manic what were some yeah. of the memories like, what, how were a lot of people feeling at that time tense was my memory um, it's funny because it was an absolute unprecedented situation I've never seen anything like that in, yeah. in all these years of <laughs> <laughs> practicing in this area where there was this sense of panic yeah. and and desperation oh we have to do and and the objective was surreal we want to be compliant with the gdpr and yeah. thinking, you know which article <laughs> you know, like you were, yeah. so yeah it was um it was an interesting time yeah. and i'm glad we've we've gone beyond that and, yeah. and where we are now i think yeah yes. And Sorry, I, I, I remember being in, um, um, I think it was a Future Privacy Forum event in, I don't know, March or April. Someone from the EU Commission was there um, talking about, you know, it's not going to, the world's not going to fall down <laughs> on April 26th. Yeah. And I, I think pragmatically, a lot of people believed it, but then they had to go back to their organisations and actually do work that, you know, did, as you say, kind of, in inverted commas, comply with GDPR, which is, you know, how, do you, how did you do that it's a completely new thing so um yeah, it was a surreal situation i think yeah and it's difficult to know exactly what happened in terms of what created that because but i think it was mainly due to, to a couple of factors one was that the 25th of may instead of being seen as the start of the process was seen as a deadline yeah. so this is the yeah. deadline yeah. by which you need to do all these different things and that is always dangerous because if the if you don't even know what you have to do but you have a deadline then how are you ever going to to have a, a proper plan so that yeah. was and then i think there was a lot of emphasis on uh, fines enforcement multi-million um, fines by regulators that created that uh, kind of desperation, that climate of desperation and anxiety that was not, it's never productive, no, it's, no. it's never beneficial for anybody. Yeah. But, well, yeah. we are where we are. And to add to it, we had this very surreal situation of getting 
20 emails a day from people trying to repaper terms and all that stuff. So yeah, it was, that was crazy. That added to well. the nonsense, I think, didn't it? Yeah, well, again, a lot of the there was a lot of mis- misinformation at, at the same time, and I remember seeing all these mm, emails from companies I had not heard from for forever, you know, for, for ages, um, as and getting all these emails in my personal emails like, we because of the GDPR we need to get your consent and I'm thinking <laughs> why does that say that you know and there was a lot of um oh if we are doing this or companies were probably seeing these emails I said oh we'll have to do the same right. and yeah the, the, it was this vicious circle yeah. of oh we have to do something instead of thinking okay what do we really need to do here yeah. and how have things changed I mean because now we're a year on so. How is that kind of uh, run-up to May from last year differed to what you're discussing with your clients at the moment? You know, it's May a year on. What kinds of things are you now talking about? Because it's not, we're running towards a deadline anymore. Yeah. So um, we have entered a new stage. I think you can, if you were to look at the, the life of European data protection in general, in, and the history of it, you can almost have three stages. The original stage where the law was developed from the sort of mid-90s onwards at an EU level okay. and there were national data protection laws based on directives and that was kind of, some companies were taking it more seriously than others and that was the sort of normal life for slightly nerdy for the, for the data protection lawyer. Then the GDPR came along and about let's say a year and a half or so, or at least a year before the, it was due to come into effect. So from the summer of 2017, this kind of anxiety started to, to grow. And for that period of time of a year plus, we saw, the, we saw this level of unprecedented activity and unprecedented interest which in a sense mm-hmm. was good, yep. you know, and, and people became much more aware of data protection. It was it's just a very short period of time. Yeah. And then we hit the 25th of May of last year, which was a Friday, <laughs> then we went home for the weekend, and then on the Monday after, which I think may have even been a bank holiday or something, <laughs> then the, the, by the time of Tuesday it was like, again, business as usual pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think or, you know, it, it, it started to become business as usual. But the, dif- the difference now, I think, between the, say the business as usual before the GDPR and now mm-hmm. is that we have a much more complex framework in place, one that is still developing and will continue to be developing for many, many, many years, and one that is very significant for the operations of most organizations. So I think that now is really when the fun really starts in the sense of, and I'm being a bit um, (laughs) sort of sarcastic here, but no, it's when the work really starts and the effect of the of the framework, this framework that in a sense has been in development for 20 years, but it's now when we are starting to see serious attempts mm-hmm. to comply, to do the right things, to really figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of, 
because I know in you know the most recent issue of Data Protection Leader, you were kind of having a little bit of a look forwards as well, um, as well as a little bit of a recap exactly as you were discussing now, but also a little bit of a look forwards of now what should be organizations' priorities still on the agenda. Um, yeah, no, I, I see... First of all, there is a lot of work to be done. A mm-hmm. lot, you know. No matter how busy you were this time last year, you, you, you've done nothing in, in reality because the law the law is still developing. I'm saying so, but there are some aspects that have become more, perhaps more critical mm-hmm. from a compliance perspective, from a business perspective. So, some of them are old elements of the law, you know, the, the lawful grounds for processing have been there yeah. in the law since the mid-90s. They were in Article 7, I believe it was from the 95 Directive, now in, they're in Article 6, but essentially it's the same. So the, the fact that something has been in the law for all that time is still such a difficult thing to comply with. Right. It's, it's quite... It's quite a. It's remarkable, really. But the reason why I think it's so um, difficult to comply with is that when you look at the idea that in order to collect, to use data, to share data about people, you have to meet at least one condition. You need to find a lawful ground. Mm-hmm. It's not like the default is if you don't meet one lawful ground, you simply cannot do it. It's not lawful. Yeah. So, and the list is okay. Small, you know, six. <laughs> you can choose one out of six. Okay, so, so it, hopefully there'll be one for you. But then when you look at those six, three of them are very kind of specific. So you are left with another with three main ones, which we see ninety five percent of the cases, which are either going to be consent, contractual necessity, or legitimate interest. One of those three lawful grounds sure. will cover, I would say, ninety five percent or more, or ninety nine percent of all users of data. So, the which one is the appropriate one is what is become more difficult because consent, which is often seen as the obvious thing, so okay, well, I can do this with your consent, and that's like the idea, like oh well, data protection is about people asking for permission. Yes, you could look at it like that, but given the definition of consent, how consent is meant to be interpreted, it's going to become the most difficult ground for processing to obtain because you're going to have to go beyond what is done today to say to people, do you mind if we use your data? Mm-hmm. And it's literally like that. So that's, that's very difficult. Contractual necessity, which of course is a very solid ground if you say, look, you know, you want to buy something from me? From frankly, I need your credit card details. You want me to send you something? Sure. You want to be employed by this uh, firm? I'm sorry, but I need to know what bank account you have. You know, it's, so those kind of things are so obvious and so solid. But it's very interesting how, in less than a year since the, the, the GDPR became effective, the EDPB has now issued their draft uh, guidance on this point, and it's very, very narrow, mm-hmm. and it doesn't leave almost any room for anything other than the very, very basic aspect of the bare bones of what 
that contract is about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my gut feeling is that that's a little bit too sort of two dimensional mm -hmm. and, and the world is more complicated than that. But that's one that we see being explored further. But then you, you're left with legitimate interest, which of course is the big, the big um, sort of uh, uh, hook on which everyone is trying to hang on. Yeah. And, and then the question is, it's so difficult also to even understand how to comply or how to rely on legitimate interest. Right. That for, so for something as simple as the local grounds for processing, we're going to see companies struggling with that for years and years and years. And that so figuring that out, which is the basis for all users of your data, all the users of data you may have, becomes a, a top priority. Right. And what do you think has caused that change? Because obviously, as you say, under the old Article 7 directive, um, you know, the lawful grounds for processing haven't changed much. You know, they're still the same. We've just moved them over to Article 6 instead. What do you think has been, why, why has there been much more focus, let's say, over the last year for organizations having a look at okay, legitimate interest, you know, let's undertake an assessment, let's see whether it's viable in this particular scenario or whether, okay, consent, we know that um, perhaps the definition has become a little bit more granular. We've seen um, a lot more on that aspect. But then, as you noted, the EDPB opinion on, let's say, contractual necessity um, kind of narrows it and, I guess, presenting... Um, a challenge in that arena. Yeah. But what, what do you think has been the, the focus? Why has there been a kind of renewed focus on this, this, on this basic? Point. Well, because, well, first of all, you have to be a lot more transparent about it. So you, you, that forces you to think about, okay, what is my lawful ground? Sure. Before it was more like, Oh well, I'm just gonna ask for consent. But if I don't, if I don't get it, then probably there'll be something else I can rely on. And that was very much the thinking. Sure. It wasn't a deliberate point in the law that you think, okay, this is action number one: find my lawful grounds for. Pro it wasn't like that. Yeah. But I think the fact that now you need to think about it, the fact that you need to carry out data protection impact assessments a lot more often, the fact that you need to explain in a previously notice what your lawful grounds for processing are, and the fact that, in fact, that the GDPR itself is more visible, and that's one of the pillars of the entire law, sure. all of that is what contributes to, to it. And also the fact that, I think from, a, from an enforcement perspective, is one that again, perhaps not enough attention has been given to this before. Right. Um, in I mean, if you look at the cases, for example, on um, lawful grounds, it's hardly it's hardly been a, a an issue that was being in dispute. Yeah, sure. You know, in the in the very important Google Spain Costeja case from of the European Court mm -hmm. of Justice, it's almost um, looks at it in passing that. Google can rely on legitimate interests, and it's just like, okay, well, that's that's good to know that. But there hasn't been any real groundbreaking case that is looking at this specific point of, okay, in this particular case for this particular business, was there lawful grounds for processing? Mm -hmm. But we will we will get there, and I think we're going to see European Court of Justice cases looking at this very point. Mm -hmm. And from, I mean, from an accountability perspective, obviously, it's had uh, an impact 
on you know determining these lawful bases of processing and you know you mentioned things like dpias and allies and those sorts of things but also i remember in your piece you were you know mentioning another important aspect is that although you know we've removed that notification registration obligation we still have to maintain our records processing etc um, and as part of that engage with regulators and you know make sure that uh, that conversation still exists even though you know it might not be within that administrative framework of you know these are the data processing activities that we're undertaking um, and for it to be a little bit of a wider conversation about how the compliance program in general is moving forwards. So I think one point that is important there is this whole regulatory engagement because regulators and data protection authorities have always been important and have always been relevant. But the fact that, one, they have a lot more power, so their powers are... It's not that they have a lot more power, it's just their powers are stronger. Mm-hmm. That's one. Then they are conscious of those powers and that responsibility. So that forces regulators to be more organized. They are better funded. They are better... Um, they synchronize their actions more, let's say. It's never a perf- the perfect single body of regulators that you could you could think uh, could exist at a pan-European level, but it's still a much, um, uh, an increasingly better coordinated body. So all of that makes that engagement with the body of regulators more important from a, from a strategic perspective, from a future-proofing perspective. If you're a business for which the use of data is so business critical that part of your business model depends on on how effectively you use use data. Having a regulatory engagement strategy or plan at least where you can uh, address some of the uncertainties that could really affect your business it's, it's essential, you know. It's like if you think if you think about it, it's like it's like um, going to a doctor. You have yeah. to figure out, you know, if if, if you're going to do something serious with you with your body, you're going to put yourself through some kind of test. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're in the best possible shape. So it's a bit like that. Right. And and it's not that you have to go and, and see regulators to try to convince them that you're wonderful. It's more that you want to understand. You want them to understand you, and you want to understand them. Yeah. And expectations and how they're changing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great, great analogy. The, the doctor, yeah, doctor analogy. It's good. But I mean, when you say it like that, it's obvious, isn't it? But, I mean, do you see that as a real trend that companies are, organisations are, um, proactively consulting or asking for more information from regulators, you know, without invitation? And is that something you have seen noticeably, or still in one or two cases more? I've seen that. I mean, maybe probably less than they should, to be honest, for their yeah. own benefit, in my view. But what happens is that one of the biggest changes of the GDPR, apart from the fact that it's a regulation, we often, we often forget that we used to live in a world where it was the national laws and now we have a regulation, which is the, the overarching framework. But one of the, the biggest effects, apart from the fact it's a regulation, is that the regulators, even though they're still national authorities, 
are subject to this um, concept of the lead supervisor authority or the, the one-stop shop idea where companies operating across the EU can, in a sense, benefit from that sort of supervision from one regulator and one regulator only. So, to, but that's something that you almost need to work at. It's not something that happens by default, particularly if you, are, again, you operate across the EU. All, re, all national regulators are going to think by default that they are competent. So you need to, yeah, it's true, you, you, and, and organizations need to really almost earn their uh, lead supervisory authority or their one-stop shop benefit sure. that is available under the law, but that if you don't really demonstrate you can benefit from it, you, you won't. Yeah. I, moving, I, I guess, um, since we spent a little bit of time on um, GDPR, kind of moving from one regulation to another proposed regulation, one that was on the timetable actually to come into effect at the same time as the GDPR, but it didn't uh, quite manage. Um, we're still a year on. Um, is the e-privacy regulation or proposed e-privacy regulation to kind of reformat and review the existing e-privacy directive. Um, it's kind of moved through from presidency to presidency yeah. over the last, uh, well, year and a half or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, what's What's been your view on um, the delay on that? Um, and what kind of impact do you think that that's had on organizations that maybe they didn't necessarily expect it to come into effect at the same time as GDPR? Um, I think maybe um, there was a lot of skepticism on whether that would actually happen. Um, But obviously it's been a massive point on their radar for a long time um, and trying to balance existing e-privacy directive rules and requirements with that under the GDPR um, and awaiting the discussions and having a look at each review of the draft. Um, What kind of impact do you think that that's had? Well, we we have this strange situation at the moment where the European e-privacy law, which is meant to almost qualify the general privacy law predates the general privacy law. You know, so the, the existing e-privacy directive is from, well, the last time it was reviewed, it was revised, was in 2009, and it, uh, the GDPR, of course, is, is a lot more recent. So we've got this strange situation that we have one law that is meant to qualify another, but that it predates, predates the, the general framework. But this year started with a lot of impetus from the country that was in the presidency of the council, right. Romania. And in the first month or month and a half, there had already been three drafts from what I remember. <laughs> so the, 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 the year started really active. And maybe if you had asked me this question in early February, I would have said, yeah, we'll definitely have right. a trial of starting possibly even by the summer. But here we are at, in, in May, yeah. so the presidency will finish 
in, in a few weeks. In a few weeks, really, and we haven't really seen much progress. And it's of course a very political issue, and it's affected by obviously what is happening in terms of the par parliament elections and the focus of countries. And to an, to an extent, maybe Brexit may have had an effect on that. But the reality is that here we are, as you say, all these years now after the Commission published its proposal for what should have been a relatively straightforward piece of legislation because the e-privacy regulation compared to the changes introduced by the GDPR to the, to the original directive are not that significant in, in, in theory at least. But of course, because it's very political, because of the current situation, the fact that it is obvious that a law that is trying to regulate so specifically the digital economy, mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about here, is always going to be controversial and it's going to attract a lot of debate and criticism and, and, trying, and different points of view. That's why this hasn't progressed. The logical way forward would be for sometime this year to for the council to agree their preferred draft and then sometime next year at least the council and the parliament and the commission to finalize the text at some point during next year so it will probably happen I'm, I'm assuming it's the most logical thing that it will happen no one has said oh let's just get rid of this whole project and sure. let's just stick with the GDPR I think Regulators, the Commission, the Parliament, they all think that we should have this sort of e-privacy framework. So it will eventually happen. But in the meantime, we're living in this kind of limbo where we have the old e-privacy directive, yeah. which has this whole, you know, obviously consent for cookies and, yeah. uh, and the way that, that has been interpreted. But that consent needs to meet the GDPR standards of consent and that is is, is basically a slightly uh, chaotic situation for for anyone that is trying to make some sense of, of how to comply with, with the law. Yeah, I mean, so much so, I guess, you know, the obviously the EDPB has stepped in, they've issued their opinion on um, the interplay between e-privacy e and the existing e-privacy directive, rather, and the GDPR. Um, obviously, they had a particular focus on um, their own competency, in, in a sense. Um, it is very much focused on uh, the tasks and powers of the DPAs in relation to both pieces of legislation, but obviously, um, as a result, you know they've touched on a couple of these um, pain points as they might be between um, the uh, interplay between existing directive and the GDPR. Um, how, how have you seen that piece of guidance in terms of its importance in? being released from the EDPB point of view, but also from an organizational perspective, you know, is it something that's, um, that they were, I mean, expecting, welcoming, you know, what's been the reaction that you've seen to it? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, regu regulatory guidance 
it's always helpful in yeah. the sense that at least at least you get to know what the regulators are thinking. So yeah. that in itself is very helpful. But as we've said so many times, you need to be uh, careful what you wish for sometimes because yeah. when you ask a regulator to tell you what they think, they're going they're not going to tell you. Ah, don't worry. It's not. It's not that important. And you can you can just do these things here and there and mm-hmm. just get away with it. They're not going to tell you. Oh, we're not going to bother about enforcing this law. They're going to say, well, this is how we think it should be interpreted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether the enforcement follows is, is sometimes very different. But the reality is that this opinion on on e privacy and the GDPR addresses a very complex thing which is interaction between the two mm-hmm. and as I said that is helpful I my personal view is that it is a little bit confusing the way they've done it yeah. because I have always looked at these two frameworks as being complementary but different in the sense that the GDPR and the and the, and the old 95 directive they establish a baseline general framework for anything to do with the use of personal data. Yeah. And the GDPR is very complex, And but as we were saying at the beginning, in terms of the idea of the lawful grounds for processing, it just follows what the directive had established in the mid-90s. So from that perspective, that's settled. The e-privacy directive in, didn't introduce new grounds for processing. Didn't say, oh, uh, and on top of it, it wasn't like with sensitive personal data, for example, that you, you in the old UK Data Protection Act, if you remember, it used to say, well, if you use if you process personal data, you need to meet one of the uh, grounds for processing schedule two. Yeah. And but if you use sensitive personal data, you on top of that, you need to meet one of the. Um, grounds from in, in, in Schedule 3. Yeah. It was something like that. Yeah. So the, the, e, the e-privacy directive doesn't do that. No. It's simply, you know, if you look at the, the, the text, it's been in the law since, since um, you know, the original version, and then it was changed to notice and consent. But yeah. the, the, that Article 5.3 of the e-privacy <laughs> directive still says, well, if, you, if you're accessing data or you're storing data on terminal equipment or yeah. basically a, a, a device, then you need to provide notice and then after providing it, you need to get consent. Okay, so, which is a, the cookie consent idea. That is nothing to do, in my view, with lawful grounds for processing. It's just a straightforward obligation to say, if you do this, you need to get consent. Yeah. So. And the opinion, in my view, tries in, in trying to be helpful. I mean, I'm not trying to. I don't. I'm not saying that they are deliberately trying to confuse it. But in trying to be helpful, they merge the two. Yeah. And they say, well, because you need to. It's essentially, what they are saying, because you need to go and get consent for cookies anyway. Uh, if those cookies are used to collect personal data, don't worry about finding the lawful grounds for processing because you're going to need to get consent anyway. So just go and get consent. But. It's yeah, it's a simple, straightforward way of looking at it. But I don't think it's legally accurate because the legally accurate way is to say, under Article Six of the GDPR, you need to find a lawful grounds for processing if you are collecting personal data through cookies or using cookies as personal yeah. data. Figure out what's the lawful ground for processing. It may be consent, but it may not be consent. 
And then, on top of that, to the extent that, yes, you are accessing data from the device or storing data like a cookie on the device itself, yes, if you don't qualify for one of the exemptions, you may need consent. But they are different obligations. They're different. They're very different between two different frameworks. So, um, in my view, it's, it's neater and legally more accurate to look at them differently and say, okay, what's your law for transfer processing? And then do you need to, to get consent for cookies? Mm -hmm. but we are where we are, and I think uh, the emphasis seems to be, I mean, if there is one way to summarize this, is that, frankly, the requirement to get consent for cookies or, again, similar technologies, as we, we often say, is there, hasn't changed, and is not going away. Interesting. There you go. So, <laughs> cookie runners, everyone. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure we're going to tell the questions about that next week, then. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. listening to the pod. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, okay, good. Okay. Uh, yeah, so moving around a bit, we've got a, a bit of a piece now on um, kind of the global changing landscape. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I said at the start, the, the podcast, one of the most interesting things I find about you know, privacy working in, in our roles, I suppose, is, is the global perspective. Yeah. You know, whether you're talking about new legal frameworks. Quite often, different appro different approaches that are reflected in legal frameworks, perhaps, or expectations just towards the use of data. It's super interesting. Yeah. And we've been doing a few different things this year, Alexis. Yeah. Uh, we've been sort of doing these projects where we benchmark GDPR against well, things like um, Brazil, LGPD, yeah. and California, CCPA. Yeah, yeah we did Japan too. Japan, and looking at Russia, Steve. Looking at Russia yeah. at the moment. I'm putting you on the spot. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's been good. Um, it's yeah, it's been super interesting. I think you know we touched on it um, a little bit last time, mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, I guess you know, not to not to bring it in again, but, but. bringing it in again <laughs> um, from a GDPR perspective, obviously, as Eduardo was outlining, you know, it's been so much effort, resources, time, money put into GDPR. And obviously these frameworks have developed since that time and are, you know, really huge economies when, you know, you're talking about California, I think, what are they, the fifth largest economy in the world and um, Brazil and Japan, you know. So, uh, you know, a lot of the questions that we ended up getting were, how does it compare to the GDPR, um, how do we utilize all the compliance efforts that we've been putting in over the last couple of years um, to continue the momentum with respect to global compliance, the global peace? Um, and you know, we started having a look and saying, okay, well, let's try and map out um, the areas of difference or similarity to say, okay, well, personal information under one is not the same as personal data under GDPR, you know, very, very basic things like that, that, um, I mean, I say basic, but in actual factor at the core, um, even as we were saying in terms of lawful basis of processing, mm -hmm. you know, you can have a look at, you know, article six and seven and say, okay, well, that's under the GDPR, but, you know, under California and the LGPD, you know, they will have, um, similarities but they will also have differences and maybe a couple of extra different lawful bases that might be able to be utilized in certain circumstances maybe not um but it's been re a really interesting yeah. um few projects um and 
you know, one that I don't think shows any sign of kind of slowing down. No. Um, well, the amount of countries in the world are a kind of limit, but we no, can, we yeah. can go for a while, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, aside from that, when you look at something like um, Japan as well, that's been, you know, it had its discussions with the European Commission over the last couple of years. Sure. It's been one of the first jurisdictions in a while. Um, I know how many years maybe Eduardo you know the last time um, uh, jurisdiction was considered adequate um, so for Japan yeah mm, Uruguay maybe yeah like two, yeah. two three years ago yeah was that so it's been a while in the making sure um, and on New, New Zealand New Zealand Uruguay it was those kind of yeah, places yeah. Yeah, and I mean, once... beautiful places. <laughs> so it sounded a bit like oh, those kind of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and I think that you know, uh, getting adequacy and uh, from the European Commission takes a long time. There's a lot of jurisdictions that have um, been put up for um, discussions as yeah. well. Um, so that had a lot of impetus behind it. I, I don't know what kinds of things, especially with Japan, uh, maybe Eduardo. I think you were saying to us that you know maybe you're. I think you're going out there for um, business in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be there next week. Yeah. Right, next week in Tokyo. Right, so for a week or two weeks. Or... It's for a week. Yeah, yeah. just to obviously go uh, work, but amongst other things to meet with the local personal information protection agency, I right. think, as we can call it. So basically the, the data protection commission are, are there. And it's interesting what, what you're saying about uh, these new laws that are emerging in a very visible way throughout the, the world in all, the, in all continents, really, because in, in, in Africa Absolutely. as well. So, but the, uh, what I think is really interesting about all of these Apart from obviously, I, I love the laws themselves, <laughs> but no, if you look at it at a, sort of from a higher level, they all seem to be going in a very similar direction. Mm-hmm. And of course, laws will never be identical throughout cultures and, and jurisdictions because each law, even if they reflect or they arise as a result of some public policy needs, they will always be subject to the cultures, uh, social cultures, the political and and legal frameworks of their own jurisdiction. So there are always going to be differences. But in this area, what we are seeing in places as different as California, Brazil, India, uh, Japan, and Nigeria, or Nigeria, or Ghana, or or all the countries that are quite active in this this space, is that they are going in, in, in one direction. So it's, there's an element of giving people, con- giving, giving users control, so that they all have some rights, so the opportunity to, to opt out of things, or to have a say on things, or to ask for information. The fact that in the States, in the, in the CCPA, there is a right of access for the first time. You know, because yeah. in... in um, We've never seen something like that in in the U.S. At, at least, at a sort of aside from maybe some some sectors or the, the health sector or the financial services. But the reality is that at a, at a wider level, to have a, a blanket right of access like we have had in Europe yeah. is something that is emerging, and that is that's a a trend. Yeah. So that's just something that companies need to say. Okay, 
if on the assumption that this is a this is going to become a pretty much universal right that people will have some form of access to understand what information we have about them and some form of control which again will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and in some countries will be more sophisticated than others but on the whole yeah. it's all about people having a say on what happen- what's happening to the data yeah. how do we prepare for that yeah. so to have that baseline of compliance and things like that is is good because then allows you to say, okay, it's, it's a business-wide um, duty. And there are other, other issues, um, accountability and the requirements around data protection or privacy by design, yeah. privacy data protection impact assessments, all these different things that are emerging in different jurisdictions, they all go in similar directions. So if you are able to spot the sort of maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven issues that are more consistent around the, the world that we may have you know, mentioned a couple, but there'll be other things, then you can start putting together the basis for a pretty comprehensive and very effective global privacy program. And that, that's what's yeah. good. And yeah. that's something that you know, some of us have been saying for years. We, in, in the day, we used to talk about the interoperability of yeah. legal system and all these right. crazy yeah. words. But <laughs> it's, it's all about that. It's about finding some kind of common denominator that it has an impact on the business and, yeah. and getting on with that. Yeah. And maybe pulling in our kind of final discussion point on that aspect. And, you know, it's not all about um, laws and regulations that have had an impact on the profession but you know obviously it has had an impact I mean having so many jurisdictions now with general data protection laws you know is vastly different to when we had you know the 95 directive Mm -hmm. Um, I mean how how do you see the proof I mean you've you've been working in the industry now you know you've been working uh, with several clients how have you seen the the role of, I guess, the privacy professional, as it were, um, which now encompasses so many different things that whether it's baked in with laws and regulations themselves, aspects like privacy by design, like you say, or um, something a little bit more uh, administrative, like uh, appointment of a DPO within that organization itself, even to begin with. How have you seen the the role change and how, what kinds of things now yeah. that are... This... When, when the privacy professional even sort of existed as a generic term, you know, that's quite interesting, isn't it? When yeah. did that start to become people self-identifying on the privacy yeah. professional? Well, I think today we have this concept of the privacy professional that encompasses many, many different things and different flavors, but yeah. it's all around people like us whose job is to help organizations uh, meet the requirements and address the requirements set out in in legal frameworks and um, around the world to do with privacy, data protection, and data security. So there are different ways or different angles to this. You have lawyers, and you have always had lawyers, but you have had consultants as well who are not lawyers but are basically doing a very similar job. You then... I uh, started to see more uh, information security professionals, mm-hmm. 
But then what happened was that because this affected different aspects of businesses from HR to marketing to um, any kind of business development. So you you started seeing people coming from those angles, marketing professionals becoming privacy professionals and things like that. And today you've got this fantastic um, sort of rainbow of people with different abilities, all of whom have a bit of everything, I guess. And some may may come from, as I said, a particular background, but you know, I'm a lawyer, but I need to know about the technology and I need to know yeah. about how marketing professionals think and why why it is important to reach audiences and things like that. Yeah. So I think the, the point is that we, we all learn from each other. That's yeah. part of why this is so, so fascinating. But perhaps what makes it even more fascinating is that it's an always evolving job. And yeah. um, yes, in the early days, it was kind of more like a box ticking exercise if or, you know, or filling in forms for registrations of, of uh, controllers. But uh, now it's much more business critical, and I think we've observed that over the past few years, and that's why it's become so important. And we've seen the, the growth of professionals and certified professionals and training, yeah. and, and I think all of that is really, really good. Yeah, and as a young lawyer, as a field you got involved in, I don't know, perhaps you can tell us a little bit of that story, but from what I remember you telling us a few years ago, it's kind of one of your first assignments or, you know, early years helping companies with the registrations for the ICO and sort of quite basic privacy data protection requirements for sure. fulfilling well, obligations. Because, for, I mean, I, the reason why I got into this is because I was a, a paralegal. In, I wasn't even a, a, a right. qualified English solicitor yet, but I was a paralegal in a law firm. Yeah. I had done a master's and something to do with telecoms and IP. Right. And there was a partner in my firm that said, oh, a client is asking about this data protection registration requirement or something we need to uh, comply we need to talk to a registrar <laughs> and, uh, and you, you know you can you investigate that and and I managed somehow to f- get a brochure from the data protection registrar under the 1984 act and I figured out oh this is quite straightforward you just fill in a form basically <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah and that's how I breaking work there. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and I go so I, I, I'm sure I produce a, a beautifully prepared sort of Page, one page memo that probably took me three or four days to put, to put together but uh, nonetheless did the job yeah. and um, and yeah it was all about uh, race and I still remember uh, clients said oh or partners and firms saying, oh, we have a client that has said that um, they need to comply with data protection law so where do, where do we fill in the form? I said, well, but you do need to register, but it's it's more than that, you know. Yeah. And it was like, well, well, let's just do the form, and then we'll see if something ever happens. And that that was we've gone from that yeah. to where we are today. And yeah. and you know you've got all these people involved in in making important business decisions based on these issues, you know, and whole business models that are evolving as a result of of how the law affects them. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean. Um, we were talking last uh, last week, last podcast about the age of privacy and you know all these issues and being embedded in everybody's life. And it's, fa- it's fascinating to think it really wasn't that long ago. You know, we're, we're talking sort of mid mid nineties, late nineties, I guess, to put that in time. Those those conversations about oh, we just need to fill in a form, mm-hmm. and it, it really was a 
not an issue that was on everybody's lips, but how the world has changed. Yeah, it changed, and it was you know, the mid nineties yeah. uh, to the to the late nineties, and with the Data Protection Act, the, the, the sure. yeah. second Data Protection Act, yeah. say well ninety eight. Uh, then they had a few more things like the local grounds for processing that were a bit more relevant and international data transfer that that created right. a bit of a, yeah. uh, an issue for sure, companies. Yeah. I think that started to put data protection on the map as a, yeah. as a real ish business issue in, in the limitations on international data transfers. And BCRs, and yeah, exactly. that was obviously an area we used to work with you on. You did a whole lot on that quite early on. Was of course. Sort of sort of, yeah. To date that, that's sort of that was like early, well, earlier 2000s, early. wasn't it? Well, the, like the working the, documents. The original model contracts from, from, from obviously 2001, yeah. but the, the law had already been in place. So um, yeah. I can't remember actually, what people used to do to to legitimize data transfers in the year ninety nine or two thousand when right. the law was already in place. But the mother contracts didn't exist. Yeah, yet. you know, they yeah, were like, well, had what, your what, what do we do? Twenty five or yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, listen, that's um, that's kind of the, the things we've been looking at. The end of the, the list of things we've been looking at today. We um, we started off with a kind of an update on GDPR, kind of segued into update on the proposed e-privacy regulation um a bit about the, the the landscape globally and you know wish you all the best with your trip next week yeah, thank <laughs> you yeah, yeah. i'm sure um, maybe we can talk yeah, about, we'll about what yeah, 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 hopefully bring us back something from the trip we look forward to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um finally yeah how the how the field's changed in the last couple of decades and yeah can't imagine what we've got to come but it's <laughs> going to yeah. be super interesting for sure yeah. so just i suppose a, a quick kind of um, two minutes for listeners uh, before we go. So thanks very much for listening. It's been really great so far just talking to people after the first episode. And I hope, yeah. hope you all comment and send us emails and continue to do that. We want to know what you'd like us to talk about, <laughs> hopefully things, yeah. Um, yeah. hopefully more. Uh, and, um, yeah, what you think about it, all the issues we're talking about. That would be really great to interact on that. Um, we've mentioned a few data guidance by OneTrust publications we've put out. Uh, in the last few months, one, um, well, a few benchmarking GDPR to LGPD, to CCPA, we've got one on uh, benchmarking GDPR to Japan, and one on Russia coming up. All of those things are free, as is our um, publication, which we've done for, for years with Eduardo, Data Protection Leader. So listen, just drop um, Eduardo, Alexis, myself a note, if you'd just like to get a copy of anything, yeah. and we'll be you know, happy to send that out to you and, and have a chat. Obviously, you know any of the issues that Eduardo's talked about in, in depth today, I'm sure he'd welcome um, uh, an email to <laughs> to say hello and uh, and chat about that further if that's something you're working with. So, in all seriousness, we, we do each do Hogan Levels and Data Guys do loads of free commentary and um, and publications. So do get in touch and we'll we'll send you what you like. Of course, awesome. super. Okay, so we've got we haven't got a date for the next one, but it's a month or two away, I'm yeah. sure, and um, we'll catch up on Japan trips, other other travel plans, yeah. and uh, yeah, see, see you in the summer. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks, yeah, well, guys. Bye bye. Bye. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by Data Guidance by OneTrust in association with Hogan Lovells.